the Holy Family Chapel Hill podcast, where you will find our weekly sermons, as well as the occasional reflection, conversation, or interview. We are glad you are here. Welcome. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. On July 16, 1945, the first atomic bomb detonated at a site in New Mexico named Trinity by Robert Oppenheimer, father of the atomic bomb and subject of a three-hour-long movie I haven't seen. Oppenheimer named the test site Trinity because he was heavily immersed in John Donne's poetry at the time, including Donne's holy sonnets. Sonnet 14 begins, Batter my heart, three-personed God. 21 days later, on August 6, the Feast of the Transfiguration, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan. The bomb exploded with a blinding white light of an entirely different sort than the one described by Luke. This is a complicated day, she says understatedly. On the one hand, we have the account of God's glory flaming out like shining from shook foil, as the poet says. On the other, we have a shining flame that is as perverse a corruption of all God intends as one could imagine. Is there any more gut-wrenching collision of heaven and hell on our calendar each year? I suppose we could start a list, but let's not. If all of this feels like a lot to handle early on a summer morning in August, believe me, I could not agree more. But also, isn't this the point? Isn't this why we are here in the first place? If God cannot speak into the reality of this world, if Scripture has no word for us in the face of Hiroshima and our own lives now, then why bother? The incarnation is God taking on flesh, this flesh. Emmanuel is God with us in the world, this world, and this life. So what word then does Christ's transfiguration speak into the bombing of Hiroshima? Why does it matter? The whole transfiguration is startling. Jesus goes from teaching to praying to being all lit up in a blaze of light. This comes right after Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah of God, and Jesus tells the disciples that to follow him means taking up their cross daily. And remember, at this point, the disciples have no idea what he's on about. And then Jesus says, but truly I tell you, There are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. 
and the transfiguration is what comes next. The account of Jesus' transfiguration is often described as a mountaintop experience, which it was, of course, but that doesn't mean for the disciples what we usually mean when we say it. When Peter and his fellow disciples see Jesus transfigured and lit up with God's glory, they're terrified. The disciples are like their ancestors at Mount Sinai who, when God spoke directly to them from the mountain, told Moses not to let God do that anymore because that was terrifying. God's glory is terrifying because it is almighty. God's intention, however, is not terror, but revelation. God intends to reveal something to Peter and his companions that will ultimately sustain them. What the disciples are about to go through, all of what they are about to witness in Jesus, isn't going to make a bit of sense as it's happening. It's going to seem utterly pointless and hopeless. Jesus is now on the road to Jerusalem, and he will be rejected and tortured and crucified, and it's going to be very hard for the disciples to remember the light of Christ in the darkness of Jesus' suffering. And what is true for the disciples then is true for disciples now. There are places and times when it is very, very hard to remember Christ's glory-lit face and dazzling white clothes. There are times when what is before us is so vast or terrible or hard that Christ's glory seems incredibly distant, if not completely forgotten. We are a people who invented and used a nuclear bomb against other people. What does a transfigured Christ have to do with that? The bomb dropped by the Enola Gay on Hiroshima was not God nor was it in any way part of God's plan. It was evil and death and everything to which God says no. God was not in the blinding light of that explosion. God was with all those who were harmed by it. God was with those who came to help, those who came to repair, those who ultimately said no to such a weapon ever being used again, and those who continue to make sure it is not. And this is where transfiguration comes in. The disciples remember it later, after Jesus is resurrected. They remember Jesus as a newborn, helpless baby, and they remember the moment when God's glory dazzled them on top of the mountain. And they remember how Jesus suffered and died, which he did. They saw it. And the disciples remember all of this in the light of Jesus' resurrection, and they understand God's glory in a whole new way. God's glory was there all along, every bit as present on the cross as on the mountaintop. God's glory, God's willingness to take on suffering flesh, and God's love are all bound up together. They are one. Up there on that mountaintop, Peter, James, and John see Jesus' face change and his clothes turn dazzling white. They see Moses and Elijah, who begin to talk to Jesus about his departure. In the Greek, it says Moses and Elijah are discussing Jesus' exodus, and this is a clue as to what God is up to. Whatever this is, it has to do with exodus. It has something to do with God leading God's people out from bondage 
and into freedom. It's easy to forget that Jesus is not simply or perhaps even primarily about making forgiveness possible. Jesus' crucifixion is not about paying God off for our sin. It's about freedom. Jesus' work is to release us from our bondage to sin and power and all the things that hold us in their deadly grip, conspiring to keep us apart from God and one another. We hear the phrase, God's beloved community, used all the time. And what it means to be part of that beloved community is to participate in our own salvation, in the freedom from sin and death that God gives us in Jesus Christ. God just gives it to us. We don't earn it or deserve it or do anything but accept it. The awful irony is that a bomb dropped in the name of the land of the free has nothing to do with the freedom on offer from God. The lives of those who risked or lost their own to help others does. The gospel isn't a fairy tale promise of happily ever after. There's no pretense in the Bible that suffering will disappear, that everything will now be all better and painless. In fact, the very next thing that happens in Luke's gospel after Jesus and the disciples go back down the mountain is that a father comes to beg Jesus to cast out the demon possessing his son. Jesus' radiance on the mountain is bound to the realities of the world with all of its suffering and its need. The promise is not that God will remove our suffering, but that he will accompany us in it. The promise is that God goes with us and makes our suffering his own, that he has indeed already done so. But God's intention is not only that we will never suffer alone. God's intention is that we will be free. In godly terms, that means free for something, not free from something. We are free for the good. We are free for life with God. To the extent we refuse and resist that freedom, we are indeed a faithless and perverse generation. And even then, Jesus will not leave us. Even then, Jesus will not stop commanding us to follow him, inviting us to join with him in loving God and neighbor, giving ourselves over for the sake of others, and thereby inhabiting the spacious freedom of life with God in beloved community. The life-giving light of the transfigured Christ is God's response to the darkness of Hiroshima. That's not an idea to which we can assent, but a life we can live. May God give us the strength and courage to do so. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. You can find out more about the Church of the Holy Family at holyfamilychapelhill.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again next week. Peace be with you.